0: Okay. Great. Well, it is good to see you here this morning. I'm delighted to, to be here. And uh, this text, we're going we're gonna to have some fun with this, and I think it's something we can all identify with. Uh, one of the things I really appreciate about the Bible is the fact that it's brutally honest. It, recorded in the pages of Scripture, are all the, the junk... All the bad times in life, as well as the good times, the victories, and all that sort of stuff. And so, especially also, I should say, in regard to people's lives, the people that God deals with. God has a tendency to not hold back on the junk in these people's lives. And you see this, for example, we'll pull a character out of the the Old Testament, this guy named Noah. Here's a guy who God gives a promise to. He says, look, I want you to build this boat. Now, think of of this. Put yourself in Noah's place, okay? So you get this promise. You're the only person on the face of the earth who's got this promise. The only one. So you got a promise from somebody that you've never seen. And you're building the boat, and you're miles and miles away from from the closest large body of water. You are the laughing stock of the entire known world. You're a joke. And you know how long it took him to build this to build that ark? 120 years. This guy is a wife's dream. He stayed with one project for 120 years. I don't My wife, Gail, if I stay on a project for 12 minutes, she's pretty happy with me, you know? So, I mean, this guy, he would make most wise extremely happy. hundred and twenty years staying on this same project, no sign that it's going to rain, no indication that anything's going to happen. Everybody's making fun of him, and yet he maintains this faith. Now, is it any wonder that Noah is listed in Hebrews 11, which is another New Testament book, that lists all these great people of faith? I mean, Noah ought to be right at the top of the list. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible story when you consider the circumstances. But yet, you stick a microphone in the guy's face after he gets out of the boat. So 120 years to build the ark, a year on the boat. Imagine that being cooped up inside this huge boat with a bunch of animals and, you know, your wife and your kids and all this stuff for for a year. You can't, you know, you can't go anywhere, the stench and all this stuff. So, what's he do when he gets out of the boat? Well, the first thing he does, he builds an altar and he worships God. Very commendable. The next thing he does, he says, I'm going to plant a vineyard. You're going to plant a vineyard? What are you going to plant a vineyard for? Because I want to grow grapes. What are you going to grow grapes for? Because I want to have some wine. So, what's he do with the wine? He drinks the wine and he gets drunk and he gets naked. This is our hero of the faith. How do we know this? Because God recorded it. The guy gets drunk and goes naked starts partying around naked. And you think, okay, we didn't need that part, God. Okay, we like the part where he's the great man of faith. We like That's somebody we could admire, we can look up to. But you could have left this part out. That doesn't really do a whole lot for me. But God puts it right in there for all of us to see. Why does God do that? Why does he not withhold any of the vices of these people that he so readily identifies himself with? Well, he does it for our sake. Turn, if you have these, there's some black Bibles that Matt referred to underneath your chair. Page 949. Page 949. This will give you the answers to why God does this kind of stuff. Why he includes these people in the scriptures and he doesn't mind putting in all their... Their vices, their sins, their whatever you want to call them. Page 949, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4, page 949. For whatever was written in former days, and that's what we're going to be talking about here, was written for our instruction that through endurance and what The encouragement of the scriptures we might have. What's the word? Hope. Hope. That's why God doesn't withhold all this stuff. It's so that in the end we might have hope. Now, I like to be very clear. I'm not always clear. In fact, once again, my wife tells me I don't understand anything you say. You know, I say something, she goes, "That makes no sense to me whatsoever." I feel like I'm being perfectly honest and clear, and. It just comes out in a whole different language. But anyway, this is the big idea I want you to take home. So if if you remember anything, remember this. You can write it down. You can write it down. God is a gracious God who loves to be identified with failures. God is a gracious God who loves to be identified with failures. And what we see in this text that Matt read, Matthew 1, 1 through 3, is... We're going to read about these two people here. We're going to check out their life. And they are, by all stretches of imagination, huge failures. Huge failures. We see this. uh, Let's go back to this text, Matthew 1, 1 through 3. There's a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah was the father of Perez and Zara, whose mother was Tamar. Now we're going to focus in on two people in this genealogy. The first one is this gal named Tamar. She has twins. Perez and Zara. I don't know who names their two boys, Perez and Zerah. I don't know who does that. But she's got this the father of these two twins, of these twins, is a guy named Judah. And by all accounts, we look at this, we think, okay, that seems pretty normal, if you could ever use the word normal in the same sentence as twins, okay, and Jen and John Mitchell could help us with that, because they had some twins this year, and I don't think their life is any, I think their life is anything but normal, okay, but from all accounts, this looks like to be a fairly normal family life, but we're going to go back into Genesis 38, and here's what we're going to discover. Judah, who is the father of these twins, whose mother is Tamar, Judah is Tamar's father-in-law. Let me say that again. Judah is Tamar's father-in-law. You talk about a dysfunctional family, oh my goodness. You look up the word dysfunctional family on Google, Wikipedia comes up, there's Judah's picture, there's Tamar's picture. This thing is a mess. This situation is a complete disaster. Now, let me explain how they got into this situation. Judah had a son who was married to Tamar. This guy died. Now, in the culture of that day, when when that happens, the father-in-law gives his daughter-in-law one of his other sons so that the family line can continue on. So Judah gave to Tamar one of his other sons. Now, I don't want to get into all this, but this other guy that he gave the other son was already married. So don't, I don't even know how that works out. Okay, but anyway, so in the end, through some things that happen, this guy dies. So son number two, wife, husband number two of Tamar dies. So now he's relegated he's only got one more son left, a guy named Shelah. and he's too young to be married. So here's what I'm going to do, Tamar. I'll promise you that when Shela gets old enough to be married, you can, you can have him. But in the meantime, just go on back home to your parents because this is going to be a while. Now, in the end, Judah never really wanted to do that. And you're going to see that here as we read. So look at Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter. Or I'm going to put it up here. Sorry, we'll put it up here because this is a different translation. Can you guys see around me? If you can't, you just got to move. I'm sorry, because I can't go anywhere. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shayla is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shayla would also die. I I, I can understand that. It's like her first husband died, second husband died. I'm not giving you any more husbands, okay? There's something wrong with you, okay? So he said, I'm not going to do that. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Verse 12, some years later, Judah's wife died. Now, after the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend, Hira the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of the sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear a sheep. Verse 14, Tamar was aware that Shelah was grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing. Now, just stop right there. This gal had gone back home to be with mom and dad. She had still, all these years, she's waiting for this Shayla to grow up. She's got her widow's clothing on. I mean, she is expecting to get married. Every day comes. It's a new day. I wonder if this will be the day. No. I wonder if today will be the day. No. And then look what happens. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Ename, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and he propositioned her. Uh, what is going on here? The guy's wife just died. And now he's out on the town. Why is this stuff in here? This is R-rated. I know it's going to happen. You teenagers are going to go home and turn to Genesis 38 when you get home and start reading of this whole story. I know. <laughs> you got to be careful here. Since she had covered her face. Verse 16. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. This is just getting Gross. How much will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock. Oh, that's a good deal, isn't it? (laughs) I'll give you a goat. (laughs) Judah promised, but what will you give me to guarantee that you'll send the goat? She asked, what kind of a guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and walking stick that you're carrying. So Judah gave them to her. And he had intercourse with her, and she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, <coughs> took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Verse 20. Later, Judah asked his friend Hira the Adul- Adulamite, some friend. I mean, really, some friend who takes him to the city, watches this whole thing unfold. Listen, guys, don't hang around with friends like that. If they won't be honest with you, they're really not your friend. Okay? He, he, he told, told Hira the to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. But Hira couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who is sitting beside the road at the entrance to a name? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hira returned to Judah and told them, I couldn't find her anywhere. And the men of the, the village claimed they never had a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughingstock of the village if it went back. If we went back again to look at it. Now, let's just stop right there. Judah knows what's going on. He says, look, if we go back and look at she's at, we're going to be the laughingstock of the, of the whole village. Guess what? God put this in for everybody to read. You're the laughingstock of everybody. Surprise. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute. And now, because of this, she's pregnant. Now listen to this. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. Talk about seeing the speck in someone else's eye and not the log in your eye. Oh my goodness. But as they were talking... As they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, She is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shayla. If there was ever uh, an episode for Jerry Springer, this was it. (coughs) There's so much blame in this story. Where do you even start? You got a guy like Judah, who makes a promise to his daughter-in-law with no intent to keep that promise whatsoever. He just lies to her. Then you've got Tamar, who evidently is so eager for kids that she's willing to manipulate and lie herself to the point that she would have sex with her father-in-law. I mean, talk about having an idol in your life where you compromise all your standards. I mean, oh my goodness. If you were a clinical psychologist and Judah and Tamar were your patients, you'd have enough work to last all year. You would need to counsel anybody else. These, these two alone would give you enough work. I mean, this, this whole dynamic is a mess. I mean, it is a royal, royal mess. Now, knowing what we now know about Judah and Tamar, the question has got to be asked. And I'm sure it's on your mind as it is mine. Why in the world would God put this stuff in there? Why does he do that? And why does he put their names in his own genealogy? Listen, guys, if we had relatives like Judah and Tamar, the last thing we're going to do is publicize it and let people know. We're not going to do that. We're not going to tell them about our our Uncle Judah or Aunt Tamar or something like, where are they? Oh, you know, well, I don't know where they are. Don't worry about it. They're just, you know, we don't know who they belong to, really. They're adopted. (laughs) But God puts them right, and he does so with some specificity. So, for example, I say that because especially Tamar. Here's a gal. In this genealogy, if you look at all of Matthew 1, there's only four women mentioned. Because it's an all-male genealogy, except for these four gals, and Tamar being one. You've got Tamar with the history that we just told you about. You've got uh, um, Rahab Guess what she does for a living? She's a prostitute. You've got Ruth, who isn't even a Jew. She's not even an Israelite. She's a Moabitess. The Jews hated the Moabites. But God puts her in this genealogy as well. Why would he do that? And then lastly, you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. These are the only four women in the same. So they're mentioned specifically for a reason. He puts them in it. the last thing you and I would have done, like I said, is we would have never mentioned people like this, but God does that. Now, listen to me. This is, I, I, this is really, really key, because I don't want you to misunderstand. The tendency is to think that the reason God includes all this junk about these people, especially we'll take this example here. He, he puts failures like Judah and Tamar in the genealogy of Jesus The tendency is to think so that we won't feel as bad about ourselves. So you read a story like this and you get all the details. You think, phew, I feel better about myself. (laughs) I mean, I've done some bad things. I've been a bozo at times, but at least I've never had sex with an in-law. Okay? I haven't done something like that. So all of a sudden now we say, well, God can use them and he's not afraid to relate to them. So hey, my track record looks pretty good. I feel good about myself. That's not why God did that. It's not so that you and I could feel better about ourselves. He did it so that we would feel better about him. Because you read a story like that, and what we should be thinking is not, wow, I'm not as bad as they are. What we should be thinking, I can't believe God would have anything to do with them. It's amazing that he did. It's amazing. And he readily identifies himself with him. For example, in the book of Revelation, now this is the last book of the Bible, so you know what you say at the end gets remembered most? Jesus is identified as the lion from the tribe of Judah. Ah, are you kidding me? Just Say he's a lion. Leave that name off. Now all of a sudden you bring back all the memories of you. Oh yeah, I think I remember reading about him. Didn't he have sex with his daughter-in-law? What was that all about? Yeah. Jesus, you're part of that family tree? Oh, wow. That tells us something about you. Why would he do that? Because he wants us to know that he's a gracious God who loves to associate with failures. We don't, he didn't do that so we'd feel good about ourselves. He did it so we'd feel good about him. About who he is. Don't ever let the enemy tell you that you're really not that bad. If you ever hear a voice that says, you know what, you're really not that bad. I want to tell you something. I don't believe that's God. I'll tell you why. Number one, to say that, you're actually comparing yourself to someone else. What that means now all of a sudden is someone else is your measuring stick for how you view yourself. So you're not measuring yourself up against God and his standards. You're measuring now yourself up against other people, and that's idolatry. So if you ever have hear that voice that says, you know what? You're really not that bad. Alarms and bells and whistles ought to go. It's not God, not God, not God. Do you really want to live life comparing yourself to other people? That's a roller coaster, man. Because guess what? There are people that you compare yourself to where you'll look really good. And then the flip side, there are people you compare yourself to when you look really bad. And the second thing about that is that when you start believing that you're not that bad, you stop seeing your need for a Savior. Jesus said, he was questioned by the Pharisees about how he was helping these sinners. He said, look, it's not the people who are well who need a doctor, it's the sick people. Now let me just ask you, those of you who have felt good In 2014, how many of you, when you were feeling really good, went and made a doctor's appointment? Just just to go find the doctor. Say, I haven't seen you for a while. How you doing, doc? You know? Did you guys do that? No. Unless it's a preventative thing where you have to, you know that. But you're you're not calling the doctor up to see how you're doing and just to say hi. You're avoiding him like the plague. People who are well don't go looking for doctors. And if you start telling yourself or you start believing the lie, you're really not that bad. You're really not that bad. You're really not that bad. Guess what? All of a sudden now you're not really hungry for Jesus. One of the first thoughts that I have every morning when I get up is, number one, thank you, God, for breath in my lungs. And number two, I need you today. We sang this song earlier. It says all things are held together by him. Let me tell you, the only reason you and I are breathing today is because Jesus has given you breath today. When he's done with you, you're done breathing. So the fact that you're alive and breathing today, God's got a purpose for you. Because let me tell you, it's not about us. And when he's done with us, it's done. It's just done. You're not here because you're some good person and you've made a go of it yourself and you deserve to be alive and all this guys. Kind of, no, 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 no. You're here today because of God's grace. You're breathing today because of God's grace. He's been gracious to you. He's gracious to you. And we see it over and over and over again. The inclusion of these people into this into this genealogy, is to identify with God's grace. God's a gracious God who loves to be identified with failures. Pick up those Bibles again and turn to page 234. Page 234. It's a great verse. It's a great verse. 1 Samuel 12, verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Now let's just stop right there. I know some of you have felt like God isn't within 100 miles of you. But I can guarantee you that he has not forsaken you. How can I guarantee that? Because God guarantees it. Read the rest of it. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Now, up to this point in the scriptures in this story here, Samuel's talking, the prophet Samuel. He's listed a bunch of the sins that these people have done as have done. He's not going through all their good points. He's been going through all the problems that they they've they've gotten into and all the trouble and all this kind of stuff and he and then he concludes he says look the lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake one of the things about this thing that's so amazing about this verse is that god associates with us the basis of god's association with us or the basis of god's relationship with us is not us it's him more specifically it's his reputation So God has said, say in this particular example, to the Israelites, I'm going to identify myself with the Israelites. So the reason I'm not going to forsake you is because if I forsake you, it looks bad on me. And I'm not going to do that. God says to us, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I will never forsake you. Why? Not because your reputation is at stake, but because of mine. Now let me give you a little hint here. The most important thing to God, and stay with me and I'll explain it, is not, well, let me just say, the most important thing to God, the most significant thing to God, is his own glory. And that sounds rather uh, arrogant, but it's true. Let me uh, explain it. The essence of righteousness is that we value that which is most valuable. So say, for example, you have a husband, a dad, who values sports above his wife and his family we would say that kind of behavior is unrighteous, right? I mean, right? We we may not use that language. We just say it's just wrong. But basically, it's unrighteous. He's valuing something of lesser value above something that's more important, right? So we say that's unrighteous. So the essence of righteousness is that you value that which is supremely valuable. Are you with me? Okay. Okay. Who or what is most valuable? God. So for God to be righteous, he has to value his own glory above everything else. If he didn't do that, he's not righteous. God does not value you above his own glory because you're not as valuable as God. Now, I'm not, I'm not condoning. That's not, that's not a bad thing about you. That's not saying anything less about you, but you're not God. Can we all agree with that? I'm not God. I know my wife would agree with that. I'm not God, okay? So you're not God. God's supremely valuable. For him to be righteous, he has to value that which is most valuable, and that's himself. So that's why you see the Psalms. Think about this. God's the author, and he says, praise him, praise him, praise him. What he's really saying is, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. Sounds kind of arrogant. If you and I did that with ourselves, that would be extremely arrogant. Why? Because we're not most valuable. We're to treat others as more valuable than us. That's why it's arrogant. For God, it's not. It's the essence of righteousness. So what's at stake here when God says, I will never forsake you, and I'm glad to be identified with you, what's at stake is his righteousness. Not, it's not based on our behavior. So you look back over 2014, and it could just be one giant failure for you. One giant failure. But you know what? God loves you. And he would have never, he never took his eyes off you for a second. Not a second. Why? Because he's a gracious God. He's extremely gracious, more so than we could ever think or imagine. And I tell you what, I would much rather have the basis of my relationship with God be him than me. Because if it's me, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. But if it's him, man, we've got got solid footing. We can stand on some solid stuff. I've known for a few weeks I was going to preach this morning. I, I told Steve, I said, I think I'm going to preach on failure. Woo-hoo. <laughs> and one night I was laying in bed and couldn't get to sleep. I started thinking through all the times in my life that I had failed. Lord knows I wanted to go to sleep right away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I can't. I, it, it'd take too long to go through the failures that I remembered. That I've. Some of the biggies are number one. I was a, for the first eight years of my marriage, I was a huge failure in my marriage. Huge failure, and I didn't even know I was a failure. Gail knew I was a failure, but I didn't. That was the worst thing. But God, by His grace, finally showed. I mean, I was such a jerk. Because I thought the problem was Gail. I tried to fix her. Turned out most of the problem was me. That was a shock. <laughs> but I just, I mean, I just, there's no way around it, guys. I just, I failed at my marriage the first eight years. I still fail. I'm far from perfect. I fail all the time, still. I was having a conversation with our oldest son the other day. I said, you know, we were just laughing about some things. I said, I'm a i am said I'm a horrible communicator. And I, and I tend to be more of an extrovert. <clears throat> and Seth goes, "Really?" I said, "Oh, I'm horrible at intimate relationships. I only got one, okay? I only got one intimate relationship. And and that's work. And he goes, really? I said, Oh, I don't have time to tell you all the stories about how bad I am. I just communications just I can be driving with Gail in a car, and I can drive for hours and hours and hours, and we may not say a word the whole time. But when the trip is done, I feel like we connected. We had a great time together and it was a lot of fun together. Where she feels like, Why are we even married? I don't even know you. You know, it's like, who are you? We never talk about anything. We never it's like, well, we're sitting here all beside each other the whole time, you know, what's going on? So just, it's just a struggle for me sometimes. <clears throat> More recently, I failed as a location pastor. Back in 2007, some of you don't know the story, so I'll tell it. Back in 2007, the very first Jubilee Church now has three locations. We've got the city location in, in St. Louis. We've got this location here, and we've got a location at Lake of the Ozarks. Before this location existed and the one at the lake, we started a new location in Winsville, and I was the location pastor. And our very first Sunday, we had 117 people. Shirley and Cindy were there. Leslie and John were there. You guys remember that? The middle school? It was great. Um, <clears throat> we, at one point in time, we got up to about 90 people or so. Things were going strong. And then for one reason or another, things just they went south. We just, we just couldn't keep it going. So the elders, over a period of time, we made a decision together. Look, we need to, we need to shut this down. And it was, just, it was clear to me, I'm not a primary leader. Now, it's one thing to make that decision, and you just kind of want to ride off into the sunset and not tell anybody. But guess what? As soon as we shut that down, guess what? We had to start attending church somewhere else. So now we're going to the city location. And guess what happens when you show up at the city location? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And every week for the next I don't know how many weeks, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? It's like, I just, I just want to put a sign on my face, don't ask me. Just don't ask me. You think getting up Sunday mornings to go to church was fun? It really tested your motives. I failed. So then I'm 54 years old, and now I'm I'm facing unemployment. If you haven't noticed these days, they're not hiring a lot of 54-year-olds who don't have a whole lot of skills. So I start looking for work. I found a sales job. Did that for about six months. Couldn't do that quit, failed. It wasn't because I didn't try. You had to make cold calls on businesses. In the first, I think, two or three months, I think first two months, I made 900 cold calls to businesses. You just walk into a business, they don't know you from Adam, you introduce yourself, you introduce your, your, your company, who you're with, and you try and sell them your service. 900, first two months. After six months, I quit. It failed. Fortunately, we had a little bit of savings to live on, so I got a job at Home Depot. Twenty hours a week, working eight dollars an hour. What does that do for your self-esteem? I know what it is to be a failure. I, I can readily—oops—I can readily identify with these folks here. Readily. It took about a year before we got our feet on the ground financially. But here's my story. Through it all, is that God was extremely gracious. He was extremely gracious. My attitude during that time, I wish I could say I maintained a great attitude through it all. I just, you know, loved Jesus. Immensely, Never had a bad day. I, I'd be lying to you. But God was so very faithful. Now, and the reason was because it didn't depend on me. It wasn't about me. It was about him. He stuck with me for whatever reason. I don't know. But he did. He loved me. He reminded me he loved me. He helped us. Here's the most humbling thing about it. God served me. I didn't serve him. I did. I might continued to be an elder in the church, and we did that. That's not what I'm talking about. Here's what happened. Jesus put a towel around his waist, and he served me. And he served Gail. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Why? Because he's a gracious God who loves to associate and loves to be identified with failures. Now, I have no idea what's going on with you. Some of you I do. Most of you I don't. But I would assume there are some things in your life where you could say, geez, I have really failed you know what you probably never talked about it with people or to people or to someone people probably never even know God knows and the shame you feel listen here's what God does with that shame and the tears that that shame brings he wipes away your tears Is that cool? I just picture Jesus just coming. on, just say, hey, hey, I'm here. You don't need to cry. I've known this for years. In fact, I knew it before I even chose you. I still chose you. He knew what Judah and Tamar were going to do. And yet he's still, Judah's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Oh, my goodness. You would think God would say, now, look, this guy's a bozo. So he's going to disqualify himself. So we're going to take him out of of the line. But he doesn't do that. He knew what he was going to do. He still includes them in the family tree. God knew your mistakes. He knew your sin. He knew your shame. He knew it all before you ever even did it. And he was still pleased to associate and to be identified with you. Wow. I don't know anybody like that. I don't know anybody like that. I had a gal say to me recently, she's a believer. And she had a close relative who died. And she made, she, she said to me, she said, look, she said, I know our lives are short. And she said, I know the Bible says, you know, we should look forward to going to heaven. But, you know, I just, I'm just not ready. And I understand that to a degree. What makes heaven, but listen, guys, what makes heaven so great There's only one thing that makes heaven great, the only thing, and that's God. If God isn't there, you can have all the friends, you can have all the relatives. You got Thanksgiving on earth is what you got. How's that working for you, huh? (laughs) What makes heaven great is God. I tell you what, the older I get, the more I look forward to it. He is The author of Revelation says, light emanates from his face so brightly. You can't even look on his face. There's no need for the sun or the moon because Jesus is there. Oh my goodness. When we see him face to face, he's going to wipe away every tear. There's no shame. There's no comparison. There's no, oh, I wish I would have done this. I wish. We'll be so thoroughly loved. We'll be so thoroughly accepted. We'll be so thoroughly saturated with his presence. It's done. It's complete. He's amazing. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I cannot commend him enough to you. He is absolutely the greatest person you'll ever, ever meet. And you can trust him with your life today. Just tell him you're a bozo. He knows already. Just tell him you're a failure. And your hope is not that tomorrow you wake up and you got some new New Year's resolutions and you're going to do better. Come on. How's that working for you? If it works so good, why are you making new resolutions this year for next year? I mean, give me a break. Now, I'm all for New Year's resolutions. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're putting your hope in that, and if you've trusted in Jesus, you just think, look, i got to get rid of some stuff in me. I've been carrying this stuff around for way too long. I've been trying to act like I'm not a failure when really I am. You can dump that today. I'm not saying you won't be tempted to feel that way. You'll still be tempted. But guess what? Now it's a new day. It's like, okay, Jesus, you associate with me and you identify yourself with me not because of me, but because of you. That's what I want. That's what I and we're going to give you a chance to receive prayer. You just, There'll be some people standing over here next to the wall. And they're just going to ask you. You just go up to them and say, look, I just want you to pray for me. And they're going to ask you this very profound question. We've had given them months and months of training. And here's what they're going to ask you. How can I pray for you? Wow. That's really, that's deep. But you just tell them. Say, look. I just want to get rid of this shame. I just want to get rid of this, whatever it is. I just want to know that God really does love me. And they've got no pixie dust or whatever to sprinkle on you or something like that, whatever it is. They're just going to pray for you, and we're going to trust God because he's our only hope.